from Indiana to Lebanon, Altoona to Carlisle, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, when is a polling place not a polling place, and how does that definition threaten the integrity of our election process? Todd Shepard from Broad and Liberty is here with an investigative report. The restoration and preservation of historic neighborhoods and landmarks is vital to protecting our national heritage. Joe Geiger has David Morrison from the Historic Harrisburg Association in the Community Benefit Spotlight. And the latest round of congressional taxing and spending will further fuel inflation. On this week's Lincoln Radio Journal commentary, Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania says, it's time to hold your congressman accountable. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Todd Shepard of Broad and Liberty in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's stroke last May, during which he says he almost died, is raising questions about the state's governor and lieutenant governor disability procedure law. Fetterman's office and campaign delayed for several days disclosure of his health crisis, raising questions about whether proper procedure was followed in that the now Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate is first in the line of secession should Governor Tom Wolf be unable to perform the duties of his office. State Senator David Argel is chairman of the Senate State Government Committee. He has sent a second letter to Fetterman asking for information on what transpired in the immediate aftermath of the lieutenant governor's stroke. To date, that information has not been provided to the Senate committee. In the three months since the stroke, Fetterman has remained largely out of public view, having conducted just a couple of carefully controlled campaign events in recent weeks. State lawmakers are scheduled to get a hefty raise when the new legislature takes office in December, Legislators do not have to vote on their pay raise as the increase by law is tied to the consumer price index, and with inflation running at an average of 8.8 percent, that would push salaries for legislators over the $100,000 per year mark. State Representative Frank Ryan of Lebanon County has introduced legislation that would suspend the automatic pay increases through the end of the year. State Representative Seth Grove of York County told the Pennsylvania Press Club this past week that bill has been passed out of his committee and awaits action on the House floor. A PennDOT scheme to toll a number of interstate bridges in the Commonwealth was shot down by the courts. Now the state Senate Transportation Committee has held a public hearing to discuss ways to fund improving the state's major bridges. During the Corbett administration, PennDOT was given what was, in effect, a 30 cent per gallon increase in gas taxes, but now claims it does not have enough money to adequately maintain the state's roads and bridges. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Changes to election law and procedure stoke the flames of voter distrust in the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. Among the changes were the establishment of so called satellite election offices in Philadelphia which officials there claimed were not polling places and prohibited poll watchers from observing. Todd Shepard is the chief investigative reporter at Broad and Liberty. He joins us now with some new information on the issue. 
Todd, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Todd, going back to 2020, of course, there remains serious questions about how that election was handled here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Election integrity remains a major concern of many voters, especially as we're headed into very crucial elections here in just a few more weeks. Let's talk about the city of Philadelphia and these early voting sites that were set up. Tell us what transpired back in 2020. The technical phrase that the city used was they called them satellite election offices, and they had to choose those words very carefully. I'll tell you why in a second. But the the controversy really erupted in one of the national debates. Here's what President Trump said on a nationally televised debate in September. He said, In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They're called poll watchers, a very safe, nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia, bad things. So what he's talking about is, now, as as I'm sure a lot of people can remember, the the primary in 2020 was a, a difficult thing for election offices all across the Commonwealth because of the pandemic, and especially because it was so new at that time. And, and truthfully, it is harder. It is going to be harder to pull off a, uh, a well-run election in a city as big as Philadelphia without some additional spending to overcome a lot of safety and health concerns at that time. But the city, one of the things they wanted to do was essentially have these satellite election offices where people could go vote. And, and, and these satellite election offices would be open for many days, actually for many weeks prior to Election Day. Now, why do you call it a satellite election office, though? Well, every county has an election office, and you can always go to, like, from at, at a certain point, you can go to the county offices, and if the ballots are printed and ready, you can request vote-by-mail ballot, and you can fill it out and return it right there to the election office. And so poll watchers are not allowed in satellite election offices because the theory is, is that's really just, that's a county, that's the county's territory, if you will. And it's not a traditional polling place. And so there's no need for poll watchers there because so few people take advantage of this. Well, after Act 77 gets passed, these things become very feasible now because anyone can request a no-excuse absentee ballot or they can request a vote-by-mail ballot. And so the city of Philadelphia set up, I think it was 13 of these, and they ran for many weeks and starting in September. And as you heard from the president's quote, their campaign, they tried to send poll watchers there, and they were thrown out. Well, how can this happen, right? I mean, poll watchers are supposed to be allowed into polling places. The city made a very finessed argument when they were in court. And what they said is a polling place is something that is only open on election day and a polling place is coordinated to a specific precinct and a satellite election office doesn't do either of those things. And because a satellite election office doesn't do either of those things, we don't have to let a poll watcher in because this is not a polling place. So we're making this semantical argument here, Todd, that this is not a polling place. It is a satellite office. But in terms of some private correspondence that occurred leading up to these court cases, you've uncovered 
shall we say, uh, some finessing of this? Sure. Uh, what we got through our right to know requests, and, and this follows up on a lot of the reporting we've done about the, the election grants that were made by the Center for Tech and Civic Life. A lot of people might know those grants by the, the slang term Zuckerbucks. But we've been doing a lot of right to know requests around what was going on in the election because of the Zuckerbucks scandal. But we came across these independently. And what we found were the, the people, the, many of the election officials in Philadelphia were working on setting up these election offices with the Department of State. And in many of the emails in which they were working to set these up, they were specifically calling them early voting centers. Now, it's, look, it's, that's not obviously the exact same as using the ter- you, you know, typing in the words poll, early polling places. But still, it shows that, and look, I realize that to many people, if they had heard the argument in court, which I, I, I was present for the argument in court, if they had heard the argument in court or if they had read the court documents and read this argument about, well, a polling place is actually only on Election Day, a polling place coordinates to a specific precinct, a lot of people would roll their eyes and say, come on, we know what, a, we know what it really is. So I don't mean to say that I've uncovered, that I've completely blown apart their argument. But it is one more piece of evidence that they were not calling these things satellite election offices and that the intent of these things was always to just create early voting centers. And if that's true, then... Why did the city resist so hard? Why were they adamant in resisting placing poll watchers or allowing poll watchers to go into these locations? And I still don't have a good answer as to what would the harm have been for poll watchers to be in these places. I don't perceive any at all. Have any of the good government groups or the election watchdog groups in Philadelphia questioned this? I think you raise a a very good question here, Todd. If you want to allow poll watchers in, well, then what are you hiding that you're afraid of that type of transparency here? Well, we did go to the Committee of 70, and they're a a very influential group, and and their whole concern is about expansion of voting access and, and smoothly run elections. And one of the things we ask them is, wouldn't you sort of take away an argument that conservatives are using about transparent elections? If you had allowed, if, if the city had allowed poll watchers to go in. And one of the reasons we asked the Committee of 70 was because they had discussed the creation of early voting centers, those words exactly, with the city of Philadelphia. So they, they were in part the co-creators. And what they told us, they said, quote, if Pennsylvania had actual in-person early voting with poll books and voting machines, it'd be absolutely important for partisan poll watchers to not only have access to the voting area, but an ability to challenge voters on reasonable grounds. This would be a legitimate safeguard. There's a separate challenge process for absentee and mail-in ballots because obviously many voters are requesting and returning from their homes. So unless partisan poll watchers have a logical and lawful role to play in a so-called satellite election office, it's unclear to us why they need to be observing what any voter can do at their kitchen table. To me, this person is, is creating a syllogism that goes in the opposite way. You know, a syllogism usually goes from the general to the more specific and then reaches a conclusion. This person seems to be saying, well, 
when a person fills out their ballot at their kitchen table, they don't need a poll watcher. And so when they fill out their mail-in ballot at the satellite election office, they also don't need a poll watcher. And so it seems to me that the logic doesn't hold because they go from the specific to the general rather than the general to the specific. And it, it just, again, it's still, it, it doesn't hold, it, it just doesn't hold with me in my mind. I don't think that that fully answers what harm would have been presented if a poll watcher had been allowed in. And if you are filling out your ballot at home, presumably you only have one ballot to fill out at home and there aren't a bunch of other people around. Not only that, but like someone that might go have gone to a satellite election office, it's possible that they might have asked for different kinds of help from whoever was printing the ballots, whoever was giving it to them. And that's another aspect of the voting process that deserves to be watched because you don't want the, the poll employee giving some sort of improper answer or some sort of answer that that would mislead the person into casting an incorrect ballot or an answer that would sort of tilt them towards voting for one candidate over another. We have been talking with Todd Shepard. Todd is the chief investigative reporter for Broad and Liberty. Todd, tell us a bit about Broad and Liberty. Also, where can folks go to read Broad and Liberty? Yeah, just check us out at broadandliberty.com. Please sign up for our emails and and follow us on Twitter while you're there and Facebook as well. But uh, we've been around for three years, and we exist specifically to try to give voice to a lot of opinions that we feel are shut out in the southeast region of Pennsylvania. And we do that because we think the Inquirer has become a little bit more narrow in its political focus over the last few years. And so we have my reporting there, as well as opinion from a host of guest authors every day. Todd Shepard of Broad and Liberty. Todd, thank you for being back with us. I appreciate it, Loman. The Historic Harrisburg Association is dedicated to the restoration, preservation, and proper stewardship of historic neighborhoods and landmarks in the state's capital city. Joe Geiger has David Morrison of the association in this week's Community Benefit Spotlight. Thank you, Loman, and thank you, David, for being a guest on the Lincoln Radio Program. Thank you. David, tell us a little bit about Historic Harrisburg. Just before you do, let me kind of frame it for our listeners that there are all kinds of 501c3 purely public charities or nonprofit organizations and 20 different types of those. And normally people think about the YMCA or the food bank or maybe a dog therapy program, those kinds of things. Your organization is a little bit different within this 501c3 community than most people would think about. So tell us a little bit about the Historic Harrisburg Association, what you do. Well, Historic Harrisburg is a historic preservation organization, and that's really about community improvement and community revitalization. We were founded almost 50 years ago in 1973. It was in the aftermath of the devastating flood of Hurricane Agnes, which happened exactly 50 years ago, devastated much of Harrisburg. And the response to that was there really have to be a lot of different ways that not only individual citizens and and property owners, but the community at large can work together to revitalize Harrisburg after all of the, the devastation and loss. So our organization was very much at the center of that, and it has been very much at the center of subsequent efforts to uh, enhance and improve the city. 
all within the context of recognizing the value of historic buildings and historic neighborhoods rather than tearing them down for urban renewal and and modern construction. I'm a history buff, and I understand that completely, but how would you respond to a question like, uh, how do you value a, a historic structure? Well, what we have found is that when you have buildings in a historic district, and Harrisburg happens to have now 11 historic districts, which is extraordinary for a city our size, that the property values are increased. Uh, the desirability of each block of, the, of a neighborhood is, is enhanced because, you know, when the houses are close together, row houses for the most part, what one person does really affects what everybody does. And if, if everybody abides by a sense of historic preservation and, and not putting in inappropriate modern changes, the overall neighborhood looks better, it thrives, and the property values are enhanced. And that's been proven not only in Harrisburg, but all across the country, and certainly in Europe. The historic districts have been established through either municipal or state government, and so there has to be an application process and an approval process that says, yes, indeed, this area is indeed a historic district and and worthy of preservation because it it has this uh, concentration of historic architecture, historic buildings, traditional streetscapes, and municipal historic districts are uh, overseen by the Historic Architectural Review Board, which is a city organization, a volunteer board of uh, people who meet once a month. And uh, and they basically, people will come to them with an application to say, you know, I want to replace my front door. And if, if they've got a proposal for a very modern, out-of-character front door, the review board will basically advise them on what would look better. So it's kind of reg- is semi-regulatory because city council has final say on these things. But the review board basically is a free consulting service to help people make the right decisions when they're making changes. And this only applies to the exterior of their home. They can make the interior, the, the kitchens and bathrooms as, as modern as, as and as 21st century as they want. That reminds me of many people live in homeowners associations where there are rules about what they can do outside of their building. I once had a conversation with somebody who said, I live in America. If I want to put this kind of door on, I'm going to do that. And I said, yes, and you do live in America and you had the freedom to choose to live wherever you want. And you chose to live in a neighborhood with rules. That's a very good analogy. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. You chose to live in a neighborhood with rules. There are benefits that come with that, and and the rules, sure, are going to impose certain limitations, but uh, for the most part, they're not unreasonable limitations. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is David Morrison, the Executive Director of Historic Harrisburg Association. David, a, a lot of people may look at what you do and say, so what? Why, why do we need to preserve history? What, what does it uh, teach us? Or I don't care about that building. I just uh, want to have an upscale, happening neighborhood. Talk a little bit about what the rich history of a community does for that community. Well, it does so much more than just benefit the owner of the individual property. And as I said earlier, 
property values increase with, through historic preservation. So the, the property owner, whether it's a house or a, a, a commercial building, is going to benefit through historic preservation. But the broader benefit to Harrisburg and the Harrisburg region is the fact that the, the attractiveness and the historical heritage of the neighborhood is what is what attracts visitors and tourists. We have a thriving heritage tourism industry. It was somewhat uh, curtailed by the pandemic, but uh, we give bus tours to groups that come in. We've had we've had bus groups from as far away as France and China. What is it that just for some people makes it feel special to have something this historic in a place where they live? Well, I think that's why people gravitate to our historic districts. And I'll tell you, apartments, there's waiting lists for apartments in the historic neighborhoods because people want to live there. And uh, the housing market for buying historic houses uh, is very strong. More and more people, particularly young people, but actually people of all ages, are, are making the choice that they really would rather be in a, in a traditional historic neighborhood. Uh, one of the great features is walkability. The fact that uh, everything is compact and you can walk to stores and restaurants and, and farmer's market and the park and the riverfront and, and bicycle mobility has become uh, an, an increasing aspect of this. So uh, that is what people are, uh, I think, attracted to our historic neighborhoods. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is David Morrison the Executive Director of Historic Harrisburg Association. David, if a listener wants to contact you to make a contribution or volunteer, how can they find you? We would love to hear from somebody if they want to volunteer, if they want to know about some of our upcoming programs. We have guided walking tours and and educational programs. Many of them are, are very low cost or no cost at all, but they could visit our website, www.historicharrisburg.org. Thank you, David. Thank you for being a guest today. Back to you, Loman. Congress just passed another big tax and spend bill, and higher inflation is sure to follow. On this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary, Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania says, the time has come to hold those who voted for this responsible. If you've been shopping for anything lately, you're feeling the pain of higher prices. We've heard that inflation is the problem, but we can't all explain what it actually is and where it actually comes from. Well, Americans for Prosperity's Senior Fellow for Fiscal Policy, Kurt Couchman, captures the essence of inflation's cause and effect with the following explanation. Put simply, inflation is a problem created by the government. Congress spends too much and Congress borrows too much. And when that happens, the Federal Reserve prints money to cover it. The more the Federal Reserve prints, the less our money is worth and the more everything costs. Well, considering the pain inflation is costing Americans from all corners of the nation, it was extraordinary to believe President Biden, Leader Schumer, and Speaker Pelosi considered more federal spending to the tune of hundreds of billions. 
But when we realized the deal was struck with Senators Manchin and Cinema, we knew the House would act to send the legislation to the President in short order. And indeed, Speaker Pelosi accomplished the task of getting every Democrat in Congress to vote yes. While Americans for Prosperity also acted with exigency, launching a six-figure accountability campaign targeting six members of the Senate and 12 members of Congress, including United States Representative Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania's 8th Congressional District. The ads step through key components of the legislation, specifically pointing out the $770 billion of new taxes and spending and highlight the numerous expert analyses that find the Inflation Reduction Act won't have a meaningful impact on inflation. The ad also highlights that for the higher taxes on American energy, the higher taxes on American businesses, and the higher taxes on American families, we get a number of things that very few Americans have been demanding over the past several years. 87,000 new IRS agents to conduct more tax audits on the middle class, a bigger fleet of electric mail trucks, and lower wages, and killing jobs, just to name a few. The White House and congressional leaders have told us that the Inflation Reduction Act was an action they were taking to help combat the higher cost of living that is plaguing American families. Yet, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office concluded that the changes would have a negligible impact on inflation both this year and next. The University of Pennsylvania's Penn Wharton budget model concluded that over the next decade, the impact on inflation is statistically indistinguishable from zero. The natural question now is what can we do to hold these members accountable for their recent vote? First, you can sign and share our letter at www.action. .americansforprosperity.org. The letter is entitled Hold Congress Accountable for Passing the $770 Billion Reconciliation Bill. Second, you can commit to having as many conversations as possible with those in line in front and behind you at the grocery store and at the gas station. You make the connection about what Washington is doing to what we are paying for groceries and gas. There's an inflection point that's just 70 short days away from now where the ultimate measure of accountability can be taken. It's called Election Day. I hope you'll join me and the team at Americans for Prosperity in voting and encouraging your circle of influence to join in the duty of holding our elected representatives accountable for the choices they've been making throughout this 117th Congress. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. Find us on Facebook by searching at PAAFP and on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites 
LincolnRadioJournal.com, and LincolnInstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WRJV-FM in Breezewood, WRPV-FM in Clearfield, along with WTYM-AM in Catanning, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.